Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Just a Sip, everybody. I am so honored to have my guest on today. I watched every season of the original America's Next Top Model, and I didn't even know that people paid you to be this fabulous. Please welcome judge, icon, legend of reality TV, Jay Manuel. Either a bitch does not age or she can do a good beat or both. You have not changed a lick, I swear to God, since the early 2000s. What the hell are you doing to that face? Do you know, everybody always says that. And the thing is, you know, if you look at my parents, uh, I mean, just everyone in my family, everyone looks young. But I, I, I mean, I take care of myself. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I, I, I don't know. I don't I, I don't do anything crazy. Wait, hold on. You said your parents. I've always wanted to know this. What is your background? Because I remember seeing you on reality TV. I remember seeing you on America. No one knew what I was. No one knew what you were. And it was funny because I was like, I think he reminds me of me because he's gay, but he might be black. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, is he Asian? Is he what? What? Let's is, set the record is, straight. Let's set the record straight. So I grew up in Toronto. I was born in the States. But I grew up in Toronto, which is such a great, like multicultural, like, you know, just diverse culture to grow up in. And so for me, I grew up identifying as black because I'm not white. I'm biracial. My father was black. My mother is white. And I say, you know, because one of the, the stories that I kind of give Pablo Michaels, who's my protagonist in my book, because uh, he's not ex- he's not me, but there's a lot of me in him, yeah. um, is my my own personal adoption story, because a lot of people don't know that I'm adopted. And so I am biracial, but my last name is pronounced Manuel, but people say Manuel, then they think I'm Spanish, but Manuel is a South African last name. My parents are from South Africa, so I always grew up identifying you know, with this kind of South African background and, and and knowing I'm biracial, but my I just grew up always saying, if someone asked me, you know, what I was, I'm like, well, I'm black. Now to some black girls, they're like, oh, well, you're not black to enough. Say. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you're not black enough. Spanish people realize I wasn't Spanish. And then and I'm certainly not white. So I just, I always felt like I was caught in the middle once I'd moved to the States, because I came to the States when I was 19 and I went to NYU. That's where... I felt awkward. I didn't feel weird growing up in Canada. So they don't care. 
they don't care. But you know what's weird? I talked to Halle Berry about this once a long time ago, and I posted a photo somewhat recently of Halle and I together as a throwback Thursday because I admire her so much, and she's such a beautiful spirit. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you look at us side by side, a lot of people go, oh, you two look like siblings because we're both biracial. Now, it's yes. interesting that the Black community accept her as Black. She's the first Black woman to win an Oscar. She's, you know, she's amazing. She's brilliant. But when you look at us side by side, we have the same skin tone. We, you know, we look, but uh, for some reason, people don't look at me as black, which is so, it's been something that I just was then frustrating. But at the same time, I let people have their own opinions. It's not about what they think. You know why? Let me tell you why. <laughs> it's because I, obviously, my skin tone has not changed. I've been this dark my whole life, but I went to school with a lot of private school white kids. And when mm. I went back to the hood, you know, I wasn't black enough for the black kids. And when I went to private school, I wasn't white enough for the white kids. But I think if you had done a show that was majority black people are on a black network, I think it would have been different. You know, Halle Berry did Jungle Fever, so we gave her her black card at that point. But you did but, you know, America's America's Next Top Model, and we—that well, was the thing. But you got to remember, America's Next Top Model season one and two was on UPN. Everybody forgets that before the CW, yes. and just a little bit of tea if you want some tea. Tyra pitched that show everywhere, and they said no, 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 no. UPN took it, and because she'd not produced something before, they assigned a showrunner, which was Ken Mock. Who became one of the co? Yes. Who is one of the co EPs on the show? So yes, you know when you look at that show, we were on UPN. Tyra was the host. You know, Miss yes. Jay, runway coach. You've got me. I was the creative director. We represented all different shades across the spectrum, and still yet people thought I was Spanish. But then the Spanish kids go, "Oh, he's not Spanish. He's not Latin. He's not." It was just. But I just decided I was just being myself. You know, I wasn't trying to be an advocate for anyone. I was just trying to do the best work that I could is really yeah. all I was trying to do at that point. I love that UPM was like, we're going to give you Ken Mock. And Tyra was like, yeah, but f- that. I'm going to do what I have to do. And it turned out, yeah. honestly, to be one of the greatest, most groundbreaking shows that we have ever seen on television history. And, you know, what you said was, we're just trying to be you, but to a young black gay boy in the South, I was like, oh, this man got out and he's got silver hair. I could do it too. <laughs> you know? Yes. You probably didn't realize that, that at yeah. home, because social media wasn't around back then. There was no I, social media. No. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, damn, this guy is awesome. Like, I can <laughs> see myself in him. But it's funny because for as many years as I watched you on that show and on Live from the Red Carpet, I just never knew how you got into America's Next Top Model or even the fashion game. So what was that rise from start to finish to getting on America's Next Top Model? Because I didn't even know what a creative director was at that point in my life. It is a long story before, but uh, I'll I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version and any Uh gaps you need, you just ask the question. You know, ultimately, I was was already working in the industry as a makeup artist. I mean, a lot of people don't know. I even moved to New York to come 
to be an opera singer. This is actually part of the story as to how I even got into makeup, which is crazy. But um, I, you know, I was studying privately and going to NYU. And um, my first voice teacher, because I sang in the Mendelssohn Choir, traveled all over the world as a young teenager. Yeah. She got cast in Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence as the opera singer. She's the first person you see in the film. That was my voice teacher since I was 13 years old, private voice teacher. And so, had decided at that point, and this was before she got cast in the film, she brought me to New York to sing for her voice teacher. That's how I came to New York. I said, well, I have to be here. Nonetheless, I decided to change. I had applied to University of Toronto, et cetera, been accepted, and I wanted to go to NYU. And since I was born in the States, it was easy for me to move here. I decided last minute to go to NYU. She got cast in the film. Then they needed to do photos of her for um, just like press and stuff like that out of yeah. character. And it was always a hobby of mine playing with makeup and styling and this and that. And she was terrible at it. So she said, can you come get me ready? So I said, sure. <laughs> the photographer that shot her ended, he was like a huge deal to sh you know, shooting you know, Sony classics, Deutsche Grammophone, yeah. all these CD covers. So he saw my work and says, do you realize you're really talented at this? And I was like, so naive and silly. I was like, oh yeah. no, I'm an opera singer. I'm trying to be serious, blah, blah, blah. Cut to two months later, I was like at school, broke, thinking I could use a job. So I called him up and said, I don't know if you remember me, because he gave me his card. Um, basically, I had done that photo shoot with her. That's how he saw my work. So I went back and uh, he said, well, I'll hire you for a job. So the first job I did was with a famous opera singer that no one will know. But then when that shoot ended, he said, oh, next week we're doing a CD cover for the Metropolitan Opera. I'd love Hold. to have you do it. Hold. First of all, for everybody in the audience, if y'all don't know, God is fair and God loves gay people because every gay man has a trait, an inner trait. You're either a hair and makeup queen, you're a home and garden queen, you are yeah. a lobbyist queen. Like everybody, I don't know what it is, you get introduced to this, to this life. I didn't realize that I knew events until I assisted someone because I needed yeah. money. And yep. then all of a sudden, that one little thing wakes up in you. It's like Avatar, where they yep. explain to you where you yep. came from, what the tree means. Yes. And every person has that one thing, because God is fair and God loves gays. So you're an opera singer, and you do the CD cover. So I said, sure, I'll do it. Then he drops the bomb. We're shooting Luciano Pavarotti for the cover. Oh. That's my first celebrity I ever worked with. Can you believe that? And I had to put him in character. And I'm not a hairdresser. The Metropolitan Opera messaged me over his custom lace wig. I, I didn't know what to do with it. I took it to a hairdresser to learn about blocking wigs and they set the wig. I showed up at the shoot and then I kind of put him into character. They sent character references over. That was really my break into hair makeup. Then an agent saw my work. I started working with all these celebrities, magazines, cut to my first time working with Tyra, was I was booked as a backup because her makeup artist missed a flight. Wow. Yes, and this was years before Top Model, and uh, we hit it off. She was presenting at the GQ Man of the Year Awards, and I went to the hotel room. By the way, I did her makeup for free as a test. She's like, well, I'm gonna test him out. So I did her makeup. So I always say to these millennials now, like, do the free job. Do the and free job. And uh, literally from there, like a week later, I was shooting Victoria's Secret with her in the Caribbean and it, like the rest was history, basically. Everybody rewind this right now, okay? Rewind that story because this is what I talk about when I say the universe works in mysterious ways. The universe 
put you in opera yes. so that you would know <laughs> and you would understand the importance of beating that face for Luciano <laughs> yeah. Pavarotti. And Pavarotti, if you don't know who Pavarotti is, I suggest Google. you watch Showtime and you watch <laughs> and you watch that. Yeah. Have you seen that, that documentary? First of all, uh, have I seen, of course, the, his recent documentary that came out, like, was it a year before last? Oh, yeah. He was an idol of mine, and we had the same musical coach. So <sighs> I, yes. Yes. And if, even yeah. if you don't like opera music, this man is like the Keith Richards of opera. opera. Beautiful. Yes. You've heard his music before. You've heard it in movies. You've seen it on, you know, billboards. You've seen him. Um, but this is crazy that the universe led you to Tyra Banks and working with Victoria's Secret. And I'd worked with other huge celebrities at that time and big supermodels and worked, by that point, I'd worked for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and stuff like that. And I used to shoot the Vogue portraits. I was hired to do that every month before I met Tyra. So Tyra was real, it was literally, well, let's see his work. Okay, yeah. I'll try him out. But still, I mean, I could have easily been bougie and said, oh, well, I'm already in the mix. Yeah. I don't need to work for free. Yeah. But, you know, I grew up very kind of humble and I, and I always admired her and I still to this day, I respect every like door she has stomped down, what she represents to so many little brown and black little yes. boys and girls. And yes. she created so much opportunity and so right there, you know, I was like, of course I want to work with her. And and then we became close. And then I remember the first night that she literally called me. It was six in the morning, 3 a.m. L.A. time. Because geniuses work early. Yeah, and geniuses she knew, work early. Yeah, yeah. And she wanted to talk about, I've got this idea about this show. And so a little bit of that in that moment inspired by is right there in chapter three of my book. It's called The Show is Born. So I, I kind of use that moment and that phone call a little bit for my story, which is fiction. First of all, before we go any further, do you do the auto audiobook? Well, we just finished that deal, and I didn't know this, but most authors who do, you know, uh, so for in the nonfiction world, they have the authors read, but fiction they always hire actors. But I yeah. am a performer, and so I had to audition for my own audiobook. Hell yeah. Read, and they loved it. And of course, so I'm like, I have to read this book. So I auditioned for my own book. <laughs> you should see me in my closet. It's my <laughs> because you know, I love an audiobook. I love an audiobook. Yeah. But it's so crazy because there are a few things about the show that I, even as a young kid, I always knew that this must be how the, the world of modeling and fashion and beauty is. It's cutthroat, it's not easy. Sometimes it's blunt. Sometimes they want you to get that makeover. If you had to say from your experience, how close really was ANTM to the actual industry? Well, in terms of it being critical and difficult uh, and, being, and models being asked to do bizarre things, I'd say it's pretty much you know, neck and neck that this industry, I'm talking about the fashion industry right now, yeah. which everyone thinks is so inclusive and so great already, really isn't. It's very cutthroat. And yes, in the fashion industry, we've seen in the last 10 years more black models, et cetera, and campaigns. But I look at it as racialized capitalism because we got to look at who's actually behind the scenes, yes. what they're doing and who they're hiring. And bravo to Anna Wintour to finally stepping up and saying, we've not done enough at American Vogue. And, you know, colleagues of mine from the past, like Edward Unenthal, who is incredible. I've worked with him on oh. major campaigns back in the day. 
you know, what he's done at British Vogue is incredible, not only on the pages of British Vogue, but behind yeah. the scenes. Look at that staff. You see every uh, kind of nationality represented behind the scenes. Yes. And that's the type of work we need to see happening in the fashion industry right now. I totally and 100% agree. And it's really weird because I, there's this cancel culture that's coming up you know, in this moment where people mm -hmm. aren't giving people enough time and enough space to make the changes that they need to make. And yeah. you're right. Hearing companies say, hey, guys, we obviously see that we have not done enough and we are willing to change. Give us time. I just feel like people don't give people the time you know, that they need and they deserve to make those moments. Because I do agree with you. It's about the people who are setting the tone, about the people who are hiring in the back, who are casting, who are actually producing, who are telling these stories. And yes, I didn't see those things happen. I used to work for BCBG and Max's mm -hmm. You know, I didn't see those things. You know, yeah. I was the only black guy on the styling team. I, you know, everybody else was Lily White. There was maybe one or two Asians running around. Like yeah. my girlfriend, you know, you know, Tiffany Tang worked there, who was beautiful mm -hmm. and gorgeous and, and so creative. But that was about it. You know, we, we didn't really see it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, even with my novel, I wanted, yes, it's this really fun, laugh out loud, satirical piece. But I wanted there to be a gravitas to the piece that really looked at not only because of course, the world of Model Muse, which is inspired yeah. by America's Next Top Model, has a foot in the entertainment world and a foot in the fashion world. And they kind of collide behind the yes. scenes. And ultimately, you know, these are human stories that I'm telling. And, and hopefully they shift the paradigm about how we think about power, authority and relationships. But I really wanted to hit some really core themes kind of sitting kind of beneath this. It's as a subtext, like looking at how the entertainment industry deals with um, you know, the, the abuse of power and, and what's the cost of fame and also how both the fashion and the entertainment industry deal with intersectionality and yeah. women's identity, because all of that factors into the psychology around Keisha Cash, who is the supermodel host of Model Muse in my book. And I really sat down and I spoke with two psychologists and, yeah. and with all my characters, I wanted there to be a 360 build so that you understand what's motivating people's actions so that, you know, this story is told in a more whole sense while it's still laugh out loud, funny and cringy and you talk to the pages at times. But yeah, it's but there's still this kind of gravitas and yeah. this important theme underneath. Normally, you know, people write the book about, you know, related to, because obviously you have been in this game for a long time and you have been mm -hmm. in the front lines and behind the scenes. So, you know, you know where the bodies are buried. So normally you write that book once you're like, you know what, I'm Quincy Jones, this, I'm 75, I'm out of here. I'm not gonna be doing shit anymore, mm -hmm. you know, because out of fear of retaliation, when you were writing this book, did you ever get nervous at somebody? Because, you know, we've worked with people who have big egos and sure, sometimes sure. the ego can get in the way and people can be like, oh, that's about me. No, that's about me. I can't believe you put this. When really sure. it was not really about that person. It was just the essence of that person. Are you ever afraid that someone, you know, from the industry is going to feel that way and, you know, feel some type of way and run up on you? That's a great question. I have, and again, not only the characters within the show of Model Muse, because it's inspired by Top Model, I've used all my experiences in the entertainment industry to, to tell these very important stories and highlight these themes so that we can continue to have discussions. Um, I'd say in the very beginning when I 
outlined the story, I was worried about two things. One, what would pe- how would people react to me kind of telling these several stories? Because there are a lot of subplots in the book. But secondly, you know, the literary world itself, um, I broke convention. Like I'm not spoiling anything, but towards the last, in the last third of the book, you know, I blur the lines. I break the fourth wall a little with this metafictional kind of mechanism, which, you know, my agent said is very Black Mirror. I'm here for it. So it was important for me to kind of tell the story authentically. Um, and I had to kind of get over that hurdle and realize what the intent was behind the writing. And as long as the intention is pure and honorable, I figured, okay, I'm going to just go forward with it. And hopefully, you know, people will accept it and embrace it and see it for what it is. And the discussion that I'm trying to have, because ultimately the, the book is a journey of self. And it's this journey of awakening and realizing, and this is something we can all relate to. We all have to, we were, we're constantly looking for external validation, but the yes. validation that's the most important is our own and, and getting to that place. That's, that's Pablo's journey in the book. And I mean, there's a lot that happens in the book, but that's really where he goes. So this is not like the ALT book where this bitch is trying to burn every bridge ever built in New York. Because I'm just telling you right now, I was like, you know, maybe I might get this book and maybe it might be, you know, might be good. And then the excerpts started coming out and you hear about all these big things. This is not that book, I'm guessing. Um, Andre's book is a memoir. Um, my book is a novel. So there's a huge difference there. My book is a work of fiction. One of, one of the people that I've greatly admired and I love to read, um, and I, I kind of, it's kind of weird even bringing his, his name up in a sentence, but I've read every one of Dan Brown's books. And what I love about his writing for two things, one, very fast paced, and my book is extremely fast paced and it mirrors the, the insanity and the relentless nature of working behind the scenes on a show like Model Muse. Um, so that's one, but two, Dan Brown has a, is brilliant at taking fact and very real organizations and events and places and he weaves fiction around yeah. it, his tale. And so right. I did the same thing. So for top model fans, there are Easter eggs all throughout my book and you're gonna go, oh, I know that moment, I know that moment. But now you're seeing it from a different side. And I think most people will, while they're reading the book, they're going to say, is that real or is that real? And they're going to try to discern what's fact from fiction. And that's part of the, the allure of the book. But how do you, and I ask this in the most serious way possible. Sure. How do you decipher not decipher, because I feel like your life was fiction at this point. I mean, you played with gowns and hair and makeup and like larger than life personalities. How did you honestly, you know, keep those things separated? Because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like you lived in an imaginary world for so many years. Like, don't you? Well, like it's, I'm a proud, I'm a product of my upbringing and my amazing parents. And they, I, I was just kind of raised to keep my feet on the ground. And one of the things I tried to advise young models of is that fame isn't a real thing and you have to keep the brand of who you are and who you are completely separate for two reasons one there'll be a place when everybody loves you but they're loving the brand of who they think you are and that's not you and it can over inflate your sense of self and inevitably they will tear that brand down at some point always and well, if you keep yourself separate from your brand, then it keeps your kind of 
core identity intact. And, and my book is an identity piece. And I'm trying to kind of get that message through the whole kind of this crazy story. So, you know, it's funny that you say you felt like I worked in this fantasy world and I felt the opposite. It was a very serious, very cutthroat world. And I didn't think it was a fantasy land at all. It's because you were all. serving face and hair the whole time. You were giving me, you were serving face and hair. And I know when I'm living in a hard world and my job is hard, I don't look like this. I ain't serving face and hair. I'm serving Justin, tears. I have seen you go at, at the same award shows that I used to be on the red carpet for with E. And I know exactly, you were sitting there snatched, glowing, and on point. Mm. You know how to pull it together. Don't even try and think up front right now. I'm sorry. Not buying it. Not buying it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You know, it's so crazy because you talk about how people will always attack that brand. And it's funny because, you know, everybody was living for Tyra. Everybody was living for America's Next Top Model. Everybody wanted to be on America's Next Top Model. I was pissed when they didn't do men until I was in college or well after college. <laughs> and I was too big by then. I had hit the freshman 15. There was no way I was going to compete on America's Next Top Model. But, you know, it's crazy that years later... This whole thing happened with the gap and Tyra was too hard and this was happening. <clears throat> At that time, did you think it was too far? Uh, well, certain things, absolutely. Um, you know, the culture behind the scenes of the show, which is something that I do very I think accurately portray, you know, in my novel, mm -hmm. um, was the it started off, you know bubble gum and roses and everyone was happy and excited and we thought we'd maybe only get two seasons and that was it and then the culture behind the scenes really shifted with producers and talent and you, you you'll get a really good sense of it when in the in the book but um there were there was a one moment and, and and to back that up a little bit right now we know top model had this huge resurgence during the pandemic because people yeah. wanted nostalgia then you had this new audience tuning in looking at it through a very different lens so i do yes. feel Tyra was kind of thrown under the bus unfairly so but i don't defend everything because at the time, even in cycle four, when we were doing this Got Milk ad, last minute there was this creative that was thrown at me because by, by then everyone wanted their hand in the creative because I was hiring mm -hmm. all the creative talent and doing the shoots. Then I got these layers and these notes. Oh, I think we're gonna not only have the girls hold babies, we're gonna swap races. And I thought, okay, I was uncomfortable with it. My parents grew up under apartheid. Yeah. Um, I'm biracial, I have my own kind of identity issues around you know, what that means. And so now we're gonna swap races. And I, at that time, the culture was shifting rapidly behind the scenes and I didn't even feel I could go to my executive producers. So I went to the co-EP at the time who was wonderful. And I just said, I can't do this shoot. I am going to take all the heat for this shoot. I am not like a Tyra at this point in my career. I'm like, there's no way I will survive this. I can't do this. Because your name is on the shoot. I'm at the shoot. So she said, and I'm the creative director. That's my Chiron as well. And I produced behind the scenes. 
I was told I had to do that shoot and show up. And they, they said, don't worry, we'll cover you in the edit and we'll make sure you're, you're not kind of dragged for it. And I was so uncomfortable. Like if you actually watch that introduction for that episode and go back and watch it, it's not me. Like I'm literally kind of, I'm carefully choosing my words. I look really uncomfortable. It's edited carefully, but I did not want to do that shoot at all. But this is where, okay, so this is a good question because I want to know this. At what point did you say, it, I'm just going to do it and get this cash and why? Because obviously you were uncomfortable. Obviously you didn't want to do it. You knew your gut told you not to do it. Why still go along with it? Well, I had a contract. I had a network contract um, for with several cycles. And, you know, there was a behind the scenes, and it's really sad to say, there was like a fear culture developed. Yeah. Something I never, something I've never experienced anywhere else. I've worked for several different shows. I've hosted other shows. I worked at E for how many years? That culture did not exist for me, you know, even in the E environment behind the scenes. But there was, on Top Model, there was a bit of this fear culture. So, I kind of had to go along with it, but what people don't know, and I only very recently said this, I mean, as in like three days ago, because uh, someone said to me, well, you stayed there till cycle 18. Why were you there till cycle 18? And I said, well, what people don't know is when my contracts were up after cycle eight, I was free and clear to do whatever I wanted to do. And they wanted to renegotiate four more cycles. And I reach out to Tyra first because she always asked me to speak with her first. Never, we would never want to go through our people, our agents, yeah. our lawyers. And I said, unfortunately, I can't come back to the show. I feel like I've, and very genuinely, I said, I feel like I've given all I can to the show and, um, and I'm going to work on other things. Tyra's a businesswoman. I thought for sure she'd understand it, it was a, I thought I was being really lovely. Yeah. And respectful. Yeah. She, um, absolutely. She just had two words for me. I'm disappointed. And that was it. That was the end of the discussion. And they were between cycles, they had three months. And so they screen tested other very well-known fashion people for my role. And uh, I won't say who they were, but it's not hard to figure out who some of them were. And then literally two weeks out of production, so we're going months down, and I've not told this story in this detail, so you're getting the scoop on this one. Yes. Uh, literally, I hadn't taken a vacation in three years. So I was on a vacation and they were two weeks from their production. And uh, my attorney at that time called me and said, oh, they've come back and asked, could you do just one cycle? Just one cycle as a one-off until they find the right person. And I said, unfortunately, I took another commitment, as you know. I agreed to do this one-off cycle, which I was just going to be talent, but I wasn't producing the shoots. This was cycle yeah. nine. When we went to China and everything, I did not produce. I, it looked like I was producing like the same role. The audience didn't notice the difference. But they told me, you'll show up. Everyone's happy you're back. So I, when I flew in, saw the producers, we did the casting on a cruise ship. It was a horrible experience. But anyway... I show up and they said, everyone was acting normal with me. And they said, it'd be fine. And I knew Tyra was upset. We'd never not talked for a period of time because we used to talk every day. Yeah. You know, when I show up, we'll catch this, Justin. She walks in, I flew in. So the first time I see her is walking onto set, you know, the panel we do in casting. Yeah, yeah. And I just said, hey, I'm so glad you're here early because I just want to walk right by. Like, <laughs> did not talk to me. And I was like, wait, maybe she just didn't hear. I thought there's no way she ignored me. I thought, because she was talking to someone, she just didn't hear me. 
So I sit down at the judging table, which is small. It's me, her, Ms. J. And I start to talk to her and she's like, oh, you know, Miss J, oh, Ken Mock, blah, blah, blah. She's talking to people, but just not talking to me. Wow. And I instantly, my heart went in my throat. It's a very painful experience. And um, I've never talked about it before. And I couldn't talk about it contractually before. And then as soon as the cameras rolled, it was all love and light and looking at me and touching me. Tape change, back turned. And we went the entire Damn. cycle until... The second last episode with which when she called me into her, I got a message to come see her in her hotel room. And to be fair, she apologized and said, I wasn't being professional. I am an executive producer. You are talent here. I should have been more professional. And she apologized. Um, but things weren't great. And yes, after that, they uh, they said they would like me to come back. And I did agree to sign on for a few more cycles. And But I couldn't talk about all of this contractually, you know, and it was just, it never really recovered. And it wasn't, it wasn't fun the second half of my term there. You know, what's really interesting is, and I'm sorry that you went through that because I know what it feels like. And it feels terrible to work with someone who does not like you, who has power over you. I've done that in past jobs before and it is not fun. And I think whenever you get that threat as a gay biracial minority, you in feel Hollywood, like the dirt on the gum on the bottom of the shoe. Like, I mean, literally you feel like the dirt on the gum on the bottom of the shoe. And, 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 and it is interesting that you bring in, you know, this identity around being yeah. gay, about being a minority, because you yeah. literally are looked at as the last. And I, I went to her with such respect and I've always worked. I gave 150% of myself all the time. And she has left jobs and moved on. Like she left Victoria's Secret. She's done other things. And I went to her very honestly saying I couldn't, and, and I was free and clear to move on. And yet there was this warped power dynamic and then this emotional manipulation that was mm -hmm. very difficult. I mean, things did get better for a time, and but it was so strained after that. But you can't go, you can't go back and you can't recover after something no. like that. And it actually goes back to, and I'm, you know, not condemning her by any means, no, but it's going back to what you said about your identity getting stuck in the brand and you not being able to compartmentalize or to separate the two. She took mm -hmm. it as a personal thing that you didn't want to come back when in, when in all honesty, you just really felt like you had given enough. I'd moved on. You know, I was working with E a lot, doing all the red carpets, you know, co-hosting with Ryan and Juliana and doing all these things at the time and working on other shows. It was really, it, it was time for me to kind of take that next step. And I was kind of, it, it was a very difficult kind of jolt backwards. And that cycle nine, I still have, I can't watch clips from it because I remember, mm. I literally go back to that a moment, like almost like a form of PTSD, literally. It was, it well, was it'll horrible. Stay, it'll stay with you. And I, I say this because, and I, everybody out there listening, you guys think Hollywood and LA is so big and like the fashion industry is so massive that you can jump around and you know, da, da. once you get blackballed, you're going to have a moment. Like yep. you're going to have a tough time getting back on that horse because every producer knows every producer, every studio knows every studio. And back then, you know, if somebody got wind that you were done or you left somebody high and dry and one side of the narrative 
it was a pretty it was a pretty big deal and being a gay person and not knowing when you're going to be able to get that representation back on tv like you almost probably felt like you had to do it for the better the bigger cost yeah i mean i did agree to go back after that cycle mine um uh we did try to mend our relationship because even before top model I mean, when she was in New York, she would be sleeping at my house. You know, it was, we had that yeah. kind of relationship. So that never, it never got back to that point. We did get, you know, it, things did get better. We did have good times. There were very magical, fun moments on that show. And I don't regret anything. Being a part of a global phenomenon yeah. is, is, a, is a huge opportunity, something I'll never forget. But there were also other other lessons that were were, were a little difficult, and I, I'm I'm sure she has her reasons around why she reacted that way. And again, that's why I, I took the opportunity yeah. in this novel to kind of look at those pressures that someone like her, you know, like in in my case, it's Keisha Cash, and what she had to deal with in terms of yeah. an industry that's run predominantly by white men uh, and a beauty industry that. Uh, supports the white aesthetic. What yeah. does that do psychologically to a black model in the industry? And so I really, you know, wanted to show this 360 portrait of Keisha in my book to um, hopefully shed light and also learn. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself writing this book yeah. because I wrote it myself, no ghostwriter. And I, I, I had a great writing mentor, but that isolation, especially when you work in a world of collaboration, you learn just so much about yourself and and I, it's it's the most fulfilling thing i've ever done really 100% and it's so crazy that you can look at it from that outside perspective because not everybody gets to write that book and really gets to examine you know the hardship and the you know kind of sort of the moments that you know define your life but it's yeah. It's just crazy because I always tell people, I'm like, everyone's like, I can't believe One Direction broke up, you know, you know, they <laughs> were just doing so well, they're making so much money. I'm like, if you're unhappy in your situation, doesn't matter how much money you're making or how much fame you have, you're, mm -hmm. unhappy, you're unhappy. And it's crazy because to us, you were the dude and you had the job and there was only one mm -hmm. America's Next Top Model. And you pulled the shit off because we thought you were killing it and you were happy to be there and you were, but that's part of being professional because, you know, as a black gay man, if I have a bad day, whoa, mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yep. You know what I mean? Like as, as a gay man, that sticks with you for a very long time if you have a sassy day. But yeah. if your other counterparts who are not in your lane or are not in your box have a bad day, that's just Blair. And that's what we had to examine, that's what I had to examine in the book are these common themes and tropes that get assigned to you know, different identities. And that's what I'm highlighting in my book and looking at, and again, I'm looking at the fashion and entertainment world colliding together. It creates like this pyramid of chaos and yeah. kind of these power dynamics that are completely warped and understanding what everyone is going through on all different sides of that pyramid. And um, so, yes, my book, it sounds very serious. I mean, it is, it's meant to entertain. It is a screaming, laugh out loud time, but there is this whole thing going on underneath. Ooh, I cannot even wait. And it's even so crazier because, you know, when I look back at, God, I mean, Victoria's Secret, Vogue, and ANTM, like you come, I, I can't believe that you are not in the Smithsonian somewhere, okay? Because, oh my God, I've never thought about it that way, but. 
you th you're talking about three different brands that cemented and who that started institutions. I don't know a girl who did not want to be a Victoria's Secret angel at mm -hmm. one point. You know, mm -hmm. I, bitch, I wanted to be a Victoria's Secret <laughs> angel. I, yes. How do you do it? Like, how do you do it? But it's crazy. Even looking back at those moments, you know, Tyra had to be extra because the black girl, like she was going there. She was trying to show them who she was. She was trying to have those moments because it was all Brazilians at that point. It was all Brazilians and Dodson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I know exactly. Her secret. Oh, Victoria's Secret. Oh, you know, it's such an interesting environment. I think people think it's like super, 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 super sexy and quick. It's not at all. It's like a little family. It's a little fun shoot. Like even Giselle, as stunning as she is, when she steps off set, she takes a towel around her waist and walks away after she's been like posing her ass off. You know, <laughs> everybody, it's very, you know, it's not what people think. And I've got a really fun story because I remember being in the hair makeup area and this was right after we started America's Next Top Model and, you know, Tyra was still shooting Victoria's Secret. We were on cycle two of Top Model and uh, it was a big ad and, and I was still doing her makeup at the time. And uh, Heidi was in the chair next to her. And she's like, you know what? She was having her hair blown out. She goes, you know what would be amazing? What if you did the same show, but with designers? Catch this, Tyra went, she, Tyra went, that'll never work. Designers aren't as interesting. And Heidi, and uh, yeah, she just went off and was like, okay. No. Mm -hmm. Desiree, no. Gruber, Desiree Gruber and Heidi said, oh, we got a show for you and it's gonna be called Project One Way, boom, born. Ooh. I was there at the moment when Heidi said it to Tyra. Damn. And Tyra was like, it will never work. Boop, that could have been an easy pop off a top model, but oh well. I used to work for uh, Irving Legere and Max Hazria. And there have been times at fashion shows where I go to get a girl ready. And I'm like, I don't think this bitch is going to make it to the shoot. <laughs> and it's always a celebrity. You're like, I'm always like, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Hey, girl. Um, Yes, yeah, somebody went out hard last night. I don't mm -hmm. think this is going to happen. Y'all might have to give her a front row seat to somebody else. And if you have a size well, Yeah, those those moments do happen. And 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 those models do go down. Like, I, I will give you a bit of a, a fact fiction blur in my oh. book. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the highest paid supermodel who sits on the panel. Her name is Sasha Berenson. Uh, and she goes out cold in an early scene in the book mm. and they have to shoot around her at the judging panel. And that may have actually happened with a Ms. Dickinson's cycle one, I believe, uh, after it was like a late night judging and a almost a, like a big hefty helping of wine at a table. Oh, wait, <laughs> by the way, why does that not surprise, surprise you? You know, I'm gonna get myself in trouble, Justin, because you see, I feel like I'm just kicking with you, like we just hanging out on FaceTime. But really, everyone's watching our conversation. <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble, but it's true. This is but just yeah. it. That's what we like. We, we like shot it. on a four shot. They went from a five shot. They literally said, "Just roll on a four shot with a head down on the table." I'm not. I was right there. I'm not lying. Mm -mm. Oh my god! You know, it's so. Funny that like, I think I know every single thing about you, but like, I wonder, cause I struggle with this right now and I'm trying to figure it all out. And that's finding love, mm -hmm. you know, TV and, and having this kind of notoriety when you're known as a personality, people think that that's the one facet that you are. That's what I struggle with. Oh my gosh. Sure. 
Was that the issue when you were on ANTM? And is that still yeah. now it's, how to break out of that? For me, uh, I do weave a little bit of this into Pablo's backstory. And it's it's in a very powerful scene because, and again, one of the things we have not talked about is, you know, again, Pablo Michaels is not Jay Manuel. However, I did give him, you know, my whole kind of my very vulnerable personal adoption story because people don't know that about me. But, you know, it is very, very difficult when you do become very recognizable. Uh, and I'm sure you experienced this. As soon as people see you, whether it's romantically, friendship or whatever, you start to question intentions because people see the brand of you or who you're connected to or what you do. And they also think they know you because they know you through a lens um, yeah. And it's not you. And I've, I've felt for the longest time, like I'm in this lifestyle space, you know, even breaking out as a writer. People don't know that I wrote, I did writing when I was at NYU. But being in this box and, and when you meet anyone, they just assume they know exactly who you are, what you like. Like, I do love fashion. I, I, I love creating, you know, imagery. But if you look at a lot of my dear close friends, like, they don't, they're, they're not like into fashion. And I really, like, I really don't care what you're wearing because I care about the human and the spirit inside of that package. So for me, it's been difficult. I think the best kind of relationships that I have are those often with people who didn't know me, like didn't recognize me from a show. It's yes. kind of hard or it's hard. I've known them for so long <laughs> that they've known me since before. But like the other day, you know, I, I met someone and we were talking, everyone else was like, but that's Jay, but that's Jay. But they're like, who, what? And this is someone who's not into pop culture, whatever. And I loved it. It was like a breath of fresh air because that person got to know me, my yeah. life, who I am, not all I've done, yeah. which like is, is, yes, it's part of me, but it's not my identity. For sure. You know, you can't run away from it. I can, you know? <laughs> I wear a baseball cap to hide my hair. Trust me. Oh, I come with an alias. Mm -mm. My name is Winston. I work at Goldman Sachs. I'm in finance, dumb financial. <laughs> like you don't want to hear nothing <laughs> about my job. And it's always, I'm telling you, I've gotten away with this a few times. I go with the alias. I normally say, honestly, I say, you know, I produce news. I work at news. Like, okay, so that, that's not too much of a stretch. Okay, you, you're making it work. Yeah, yeah. It's not too much of a stretch. You know, entertainment news. You know, I do blah blah blah. Second date. I'm like, yeah, you know, I produce talk show, like, you know, it's just fun, entertainment, blah, blah, blah. And always right around the second or third date, because the third date is when I say, you know, I got to be honest, I wasn't fully transparent about my job. I always run into, it's always a random woman who's like, oh my God. Like, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, uh -huh. like, I'm like, just busting shit. your cover, right? Busting my cover. I take the photo and the guy's always like, what was that? I was like, mm, she thought yeah. I was Idris Elba. It happens from time to time when I'm wearing a baseball cap. You know, like, it's not that big of a deal. They just think I'm Idris Elba. And it's crazy because like, I don't know why I don't feel the need to be honest and proud about what I do or like, I don't know. I, it's, it's this well, weird I think, thing. I think you probably are proud of it. It's just the difference is it, it really kind of, puts everything in a different spotlight. And you want people to understand and get to know you, like Justin, not the brand of who you are. And I get it. And, you know, sometimes I've actually played, I mean, I can't really get away with an alias, but since I've grown the beard, uh, like recently, you know, I, and I wear a hat, people don't quite catch it's me. And then, but then people listen to my voice and they're like, you know, you kind of sound like, you know, do you know Jay Manuel, that top model, blah, 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 blah. Ah. And, and I'll say, wow. And they're like, but you're too tall. They'll always say, 
but you're too tall because everyone thinks I'm short because everyone thinks yes. I'm 5'6". I'm 6'1". So everyone thinks I'm 5'7", five, 5'8", five, because Nigel is 6'4". Miss J is 6'4". Tyra's shorter than me at 5'10", but she's in heels. So everyone assumes yes. I'm short. So I get away with it. And I went, yeah, I get that a lot. And so I'll play <laughs> that they think I'm them. And then I hear what they think about me because then they'll talk about, oh, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. But then I, it only goes but so far before they're like, wait a minute. Hold but, on. Hold on. Yeah. Oh my God, this is crazy. You know, you spoke about your adoption, which I think is so amazing. Have you found your birth parents? I've never had the desire to. Um, my parents, you know, and it's one of those things, you know, people, now that I've just started talking about it, and it is, is in the book and my kind of my feelings around it, and it plays part of the main story towards the end and a reveal. But so I, I don't want to say too much, but I. But let me tell you why I ask. Let me tell okay, you why I ask before, because I don't want you to think I'm just being nosy. No, 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 it's not nosy. Which I'm just being nosy. But okay. I'm also thinking about adopting, mm -hmm. you know, soon. And yeah. I'm starting that process and that thought process of, you know, reading about it and coming, you know, coming to a decision of whether this is the road I want to go to. Mm -hmm. And I have a hiccup that I often think that my child would A, want to know, and B, I have this weird fear that I'm going to do the wrong thing. And I can I, can I set your mind at ease? I yeah. know exactly what to say. And I think my parents are, were just incredible. First of all, uh, you know, because my mother couldn't have children. She had a hysterectomy early on. Um, so both my sister and I are adopted. And we never, we were never told we were adopted. We always knew because it was always made a special moment. Like this is the day you came home. Oh, wow. You know, it was kind of like a thing, like this is your day. And growing up, I, you know, when I would watch these documentaries about how people feel about being adopted, not, you know, yeah. belonging, I had the opposite experience. I felt like I, I was meant to be part of my family. My sister and I feel like we were the wanted children. We, you know, it's like a very different feeling when you kind of, you know, put it that way. And my parents yeah. have always said, you know, they have all the information on our birth parents. Um, you know, if we ever wanted to kind of find out any more information they're they're registered in a, a program because it was a state adoption um that we could always find out that information and so because it was always available to us and spoken about very openly and honestly you know we felt so loved and a part of our unit yeah. still to this day at 47 years old i don't think like hmm oh i wonder what my it's kind of weird to even say the word birth mother because i just never think of, like my mother's my yeah. mother i only i only know my parents so I think if you, if someone gets into this kind of psychological loop of, oh, but there was someone else, that's a psychological thing that you're, you're kind of talking yourself into. Your parents are your parents. And I only know my parents. So it's like, I feel very fulfilled with that. And I, I think the best thing you can do is love a child, be open and yeah. honest with that child. And if you make it a non-issue, the same way we look at a lot of these children today that are being taught about equality and tolerance, you know, in, and yeah. there are these great households out there that are doing that. These kids don't see race. They don't see sexual orientation. They're just like, that's another kid. So it's the same thing around adoption. It's like being very open and direct with it. That's what I feel. 100%. But I'm such a crazy Scorpio and I'm a control freak anyway. <laughs> that I don't care if my kid looks like Annie. I don't care if that hair is red and that skin is milky white. Y'all better say he came from my stomach. I don't care. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't care. I dare somebody in my family to be like, 
well, you've been coming here for 18 years and you don't look like us, I'll be like, shut the f up. <laughs> DeAndre is my baby. But you know, you're right. You're right. You're, you're totally right. And I should get that fear out of my head. I think I just, you know, I saw, speaking of Halle Berry, when I was a kid, I saw this movie called Losing Isaiah. Have you ever seen this movie? Of course. Of and I think it kind of scarred me for life. I love, how you, I love how you say when you were a kid, you just made me feel old. But anyway, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going with yourself. You know we ageless. You know, you know us black girls are ageless. I'm going to have to come back to something. Um, I saw that movie, and for some reason, I don't know why, every time I go to the adoption process in my mind and in my heart, that movie always comes up because I just have a hard time letting go of people. I have abandonment issues on my own. Mm -hmm. So just to think about losing that child or that child thinking about going back to their birth parents would freak me out a little bit. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's. But you know what, to be really honest with you, with a lot of these films and even the way it's been portrayed in a lot of talk shows, you know, back in the like early 2000s, et cetera. To me, it seems really unrealistic. Um, I think it's a common trope. Again, like the entertainment industry, they love their narratives to spin. Yeah. You know, like all black stories, it's gotta be something struggling in the South or slavery mm -hmm. or this or in the hood. It's these, they, re, they just recycle the same stories and it's the same thing around adoption. It's this whole idea of something's missing, gotta find the birth parent, blah, 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 blah. blah. And, I, and, and I know plenty of other adopted you know, adults who are like, I'm good, I'm really good. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, think about it. Let's say if I were to like, I guess now meet my birth parents. Yeah. I mean, what do we do now? Do we check in on holidays? Do we yeah. send like, What is that? It's a forced construct. Whereas my family is my family and even my chosen family of my good friends and et cetera. Yes. That's my family. 100%. Let's be real. Uh, I, I, you know, for me, I, I think at the end of the day, I, I think if it's something that you really want to do and, and I mean, and you want to adopt versus kind of work using a surrogate, um, I would, I would say, I'd say kind of let go of your fear. Cause remember fear is only the anticipation of future pain. It's you're, 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 you're taking yourself out of the present moment and you'll find the way to kind of, you'll bond with your child and you'll find the way to have that communication and that open an honest communication. And that's what solidifies relationships, yeah. not bloodline, really. Do you want children? I did a long time ago. Um, I really did. And I felt it was something I love kids. And so many of my friends have kids. But, you know, then my career took off. And even before I was on TV, you know, on a Monday, I wouldn't know where I was gonna be on Wednesday, I would be in yeah. Europe, I'd be in Tokyo, I'd be where I literally had this crazy life of constantly living on a plane. And then when I was on television, I was always on a set or flying to another destination yeah, or somewhere else. And now I'm 47 and I am not trying to raise a child. I have two dogs. <laughs> I am good. I am not. My friends come over with their kids. We play. I am the great uncle. I am a godfather to kids. Mm -hmm. That's great. I love that. But oh, no, no, no. I'm not trying to raise a child through to college. Nope. Not at You're this like, point not in my today, life. Not, not today, Kelly not Wurstler, now. Not on this Kelly Wurzel couch. You are not about to sit that diaper on there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The wig, the bitch, and the meltdown is out today, you guys. You have to go pick it up. Where can people order this book from? You can order this book 
everywhere books are sold. So you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple Books. Uh, so Eid editions, paperback, your bookstores, everywhere. And, you, and uh, the best place to kind of find all the links, you just go to jmanual.com and I've got them all up there. I cannot, cannot wait to dive into this book. This was an unbelievable sip. I thank you because I feel like part of where I am in my life is because I got to see you loud and proud and mm -hmm. killing it, you know, through all of these cycles and on E and just doing your thing, man. It means a lot. It means a lot that you say that. I never really thought about it at the time, but hearing that now, it really does, you know, mean a lot. And, uh, and I will tell you this genuinely and honestly, you know, when you first popped up on E, here's what I saw. I just saw such energy and a breath of fresh air that I love it because you come through the camera. So I think you're already on that road of figuring out what you need to do yourself. And again, this whole idea of going on this journey, you know, it's going to dictate what your next move is, but you already have the tenacity and the energy and just this, you translate of kind of a vulnerability and an honesty and that's what i see so and i'm sure that's what thank you everybody loves so just keep being you that's the best thing you can do thank you thank so you. much thanks justin it was so great talking to you like lots of fun how fun was that so good and so much tea let me just let you know something because jay manuel for me was kind of sort of the person who I knew I was gay and I didn't want to say it yet, but mm -hmm. I felt a sense of belonging knowing that outside of my small town in Louisiana that people celebrated gay men. And not only celebrated gay men, they listened to gay men and they saw their expertise and they were valued mm -hmm. enough to put on television, which was crazy back in the cut. You know what I mean? I didn't mm -hmm. even know that what a creative director was. Right. I don't think a lot of us did across the world. No. I had no, I had absolutely no idea that people would pay you to be a creative. Because yeah. I thought if you were the photographer, you came up with the creative. Or if you were the producer, you came up with the creative. And, you know, just to know that there are a lot of people out there who not only gay, not just straight, not just women, a lot of people took his advice because... A lot of what Jay was telling the contestants was to be yourself and go there and push yourself and believe in yourself. And when you think you can't do it, I bet you, you can get that shot. You can get that photo. And this was overwhelming emotionally for me just to have mm -hmm. that person come in and have that conversation. And it just felt like it was the things that I needed to ask in my whole life because I had been watching him. It felt like you guys had known each other your whole lives. Like you guys had an instant connection. And I think, like you said, what an important role. Like at that time for you, where there are a lot of, there weren't a lot of other gay men out on no. television like that, right? No. Yeah. Reality TV, when America's Next Top Model was coming through, the only reality TV I had really saw before that was the real world. Right. And right. the real world, the gay men on the real world were often put in the house because there was someone in the house who was a bigot. Right. And are homophobic. Right. And they always wanted to see what would happen to the to the roommates, you know, once this gay person came out and on television and let them know. And it was always so interesting because in reality TV, the gay man always felt like he was brought in to be the trigger. 
Mm, you know? Yeah. Of and course. not the example. It's like a story point, right? It wasn't like it was a, to lead yes. by a good example. Yeah. And it was a story point in order to almost support somebody else. It's really hard to explain because for most, you know, white men and women, cis, straight white men and women, you guys always got to see yourselves on TV. Right, of course. In the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, you know, if you were my age, you grew up with Wonder Years and you got to see, you know, Kevin, whatever. And then Home Improvement, you got to see your families again. Right. For myself, as a gay man, I didn't really get to see someone every week. I got to see a guest star come in and talk about having HIV or coming out and his family disowning him or coming out as a drag queen. Like, that was what I saw sporadically of gay men on that, on, on TV. Right. So to finally get to see someone in a real genre, you know, be themselves and talk about their career, it was like, oh, I could do more than just be a hairstylist or makeup artist and stop there. I can go to the next level. Not that anything's wrong with hairstylists, but, right. that, you know, that was what you did when you were gay in, in Louisiana. You were a hairstylist. Right. You were a hairstylist. And what's interesting, which is, I don't know that a lot of people do acknowledge that. And, and it was a kind of an interesting point that he made at the beginning when he was like, this show was on the UPN. It was hosted by a black woman. It had, you know, several black leads as like the judges. And and I don't ever know that it was recognized or or um, celebrated for that. Oh, I think no, people sure. just kind of didn't pay attention it's to that sure. they passed it by and i think that that's interesting that he said that because when you think about it you're like wait a minute this was it was groundbreaking on a lot of different levels how about that top model t though uh yeah bitch like the, my inside yeah. <laughs> and this is what i love about this show i love this show because what happens on this show and and i'm gonna i'm gonna speak for broadly media what happens in media is everybody has a blurb. You know, you could say, you know, if he would have told that story to a magazine or even on Daily Pop, we would have taken, you know, two minutes of that story. We wouldn't have been able to tell the full 100 percent 360 of this story. And what I love about this show is celebrities come here and they feel comfortable enough that we are not going to chop up their answers. We're not going to use them for clickbait. And in all honesty, that's what we set out to do with Just a Sip. We wanted people to feel like they were having a kiki. Right. Which is exactly what he said. And that's what we want. And to hear that from him, to feel that from him, that he felt comfortable enough to talk about these things knowing that we would never do him dirty in that sense of editing. Because when you're when you're a creative director like that or you're a TV personality, you know what right. the media will do. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm, For sure. I'm proud of my team and I'm proud of E and I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of everybody who works on this show that people feel like they can come and tell the full story. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what he said about the pressure of people judging well, you went back for all the way up to cycle 19, right? And people don't know yeah. how hard these contracts are, how ironclad they are, and how you do get backed into a corner where you could essentially ruin your entire career. 
One hundred percent. And people might be like, "Oh, well, you should have more morals than that, and you should walk away." But people don't walk away from everyday jobs sometimes when they should. And you can't judge anyone for wanting to to keep their career and keep a roof over the head and keep food on their table when you're not in that position. Amen. You guys follow Jay. Get this book. You can get it anywhere it's sold. I'm sure it's a hit. After what he told me, I just ordered two copies as we were talking. And you guys, don't forget to follow me at The Lady Sitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast with anybody who loved America's Next Top Model. And go on Apple and let me know what you think about this. I do read the reviews all the time. I wish I could like them and share them. I love them. So you guys go ahead and do that. And I will see you next week for another Just a Sip. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.